0: You're listening to The Interview, in-depth retailer interviews with inspirational people. The Retail Exchange is brought to you in association with visual thinking, inspiring retail performance. The popularity of the fashion resale market has exploded. Growing 21 times faster than the retail market in the past three years, the market is expected to be worth nearly $52 billion by 2023. As the line between new and used apparel blurs for consumers, a powerful transformation in retail is unfolding. One company that is leading the way is San Francisco based ThreadUp. Launched in 2008, it is now the world's largest online thrift store. In this special episode of the interview series with ThreadUp, guest host Carl McKeever travels to San Francisco for an exclusive interview with Anthony Marino, president of ThreadUp the world's largest online thrift store. Also, we talked to the company's co-founder and CTO, Chris Homer, at Tech Festival 2019 in London. All that right here on the interview series from the Retail Exchange podcast.
1: It's my absolute pleasure to have with me here today in San Francisco, the president of ThreadUp, the world's largest clothing reseller, Anthony Marino. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Carl. It's great to be here.
1: What I'd like to do is kick off by you giving us a quick overview about ThreadUp. What are you? What is it? Tell us something we don't know.
2: Sure. So, well, for the for those of you who've never heard of of ThreadUp, uh, we're the largest fashion resale uh, site uh, in the world, and um, we sell secondhand clothing. We sell it on the internet, predominantly through our app and through um, at ThreadUp.com. And by the end of this year, we'll have about a hundred physical stores. And um, the whole business is, is really built on an insight that our co-founder and CEO, James Reinhardt, had a number of years ago where he looked into his closet and he saw that he had lots of things to wear, but he didn't really want to wear them. And he said, what am I gonna do with all of this stuff? And when he went down the list of options, you know, of he was in graduate school at the time, putting it in his backpack, bringing it to a consignment shop, waiting online. It was a little bit icy on the streets of Cambridge, Massachusetts in those days, so that wasn't a good option. Um, He said, well, I could sort of put it all on eBay. He said, but that means I have to take about 25, 30 pictures of things, put prices on them, describe them. That sounds like a lot of work. And so um, he started to ask around. And it turns out, and this statistic still holds today, that in America in particular, although this is a much broader problem, people only wear about 20 or 30 or 40 percent of what's in their closet. The other stuff just sits there, and turns out those items are in an, are in like new condition. They they are not they have not been worn threadbare. They've either just been grown out of, uh, or you've gotten bored of them, or it was a gift from someone who it was a gift from your mother-in-law. You're never going to wear that, no matter what it is, and and so it sits there and it accumulates. It takes up space and it even makes you feel a little bit guilty. And so ThreadUp has built an entire business. Uh, an operating platform and technology to make it super easy for people who have too much clothing in their closets, particularly women and kids, clothing is what we do, and get it to us and then we sell it and we send you money for the items that we sell.
1: You mentioned that uh, the other route where people have kind of disposed of some of their unwanted items is somewhat cumbersome, it's a bit hard work, you know, this whole kind of watching and waiting and seeing what happens. So ThreadUp kind of turns that on its head. It's much more of an instant transaction, I guess.
2: Well... It's, it's much more convenient. So you simply, you come to threadup.com and you order what we call a clean-out bag. It's a recyclable uh, hamper-sized bag, and we send it to you for free, and you just put all your stuff in it. We accept 35,000 brands, 100 categories of women's and kids' clothing. You fill up that bag, and you just put it outside your front door, and we take care of the rest. So that turns out that people get emotionally quite happy, when they get rid of things, when they create space in their uh, in their homes, and if what we're finding increasingly is that as people get more conscious of the impact that textile waste has on the environment, they're also feeling better about taking things and knowing that they're going to go back into the system, that someone else will wear it and enjoy it. So it's a very satisfying and convenient experience, and we think that's why you know there's been such strong growth uh, in the business.
1: And you mentioned strong growth, and the the model looks like it's been phenomenal for you. In fact, the market itself is estimated to be nearly fifty two billion dollars by uh, twenty twenty three. A big part of that is what ThreadUp is driving, I guess.
2: Every year we publish our annual resale report, which you can see on our website at, at threadup dot Just scroll down to the bottom of the page. You can click a link, and we're amazed every year at the at the growth in resale. And there's a there's a couple things going on there. One is just the the fundamental thing is that people love amazing deals on clothing. They love, in particular, amazing deals on brands. Chances are if you're in the market today looking for a Dan von Furstenberg wrap dress and you want to buy it for fifty dollars instead of two hundred and fifty dollars, chances are we have thousands of them in your size. And which is it which is a sort of a phenomenal eye-opening, exciting experience for a shopper to say, wait, they've actually taken, it's as if they've gone to all of the thrift stores and closets across America to have the best things and made it easy for me to shop it from the website or from an app. So there's that There's that sort of excitement around brands and deals. There's also, um, you know, there's a generational effect happening here too when we look at uh, younger customers, millennials, Gen Zers. They, um, they don't want to be seen... Wearing the same thing on their Instagram feed twice, but they're also uh, cash conscious and they're also guilt conscious. They don't they don't want to buy and have it have it pile up. And so we've seen really accelerated adoption amongst those groups. So while our while our portfolio of customers really ranges in age from from 16 to 75, we definitely see that younger customers. This isn't. This is a normal, natural thing for them to buy resold clothing as long as it's in great shape and um, older consumers are coming around really, really quickly.
1: One of the, uh, I guess, barriers that's always been there previously with the resale market was people perhaps were questioning about its cleanliness or its condition or any of those things. What are you doing to kind of overcome some of those resistors that might get in the way?
2: Yeah, there are, there are definitely people uh, who have never gone into a thrift or consignment store before, so they wonder, what exactly am I getting? And I think one of the, the key parts of how we've designed the business, designed our operating process, designed our technology, designed our photography, is to make sure that we deliver a product that's like new in
1: condition. And, uh, and I think I read somewhere that you accept around about fifteen thousand new items of merchandise every day.
2: Oh, hun- hundreds of thousands okay. uh, of items wow. every day. So we process about an item every second across our four facilities, and we and we'll be soon breaking ground on a on a new facility. These are these are the largest garment on hanker facilities in the world. So they have millions of unique items uh, on on hangers, and at multiple points in that process. People and computers are making sure that the item is is like new, which means that if you were to look at it, you would say, I'll wear that. That's phenomenal. So it'd be something you would give to your best friend to wear and with pride.
1: I guess also a big part of what you have to do is check for authenticity, especially when you're looking at designer branded merchandise.
2: Yeah, for designer uh, branded merchandise, we have a whole um, set of protocols for what to look for and how to make sure that um, they're authentic.
1: So you mentioned that within the kind of key customer groups that you've got, that there's kind of two big markets which are driving almost the participation. You've got the, the younger customer who is keen, perhaps doesn't have some of the baggage around wearing resale stuff um, that other groups have. And then you've got the older, uh, the boomer generation, let's say, people who are perhaps more comfortable around the whole thing. They've, they've been there, done that and appreciate that actually there is value in, in getting things second time around.
2: Absolutely. So there's those two groups. And one, one thing we learned that, that really transcends the demographics is that there is some, there's a lot of evidence that we see on our platform and just in feedback from our customers that they do love the treasure hunt. So they do love this idea of coming back every day in many cases and seeing what's new. And if that, that dream item they've been thinking about that Burberry coat that they saw new a year ago for two thousand dollars somewhere—is there a chance it's on it's on thread up today? And that really is—it's—it's um, it's a form of entertainment. It's a form of uh, a way to sort of kill some time and to feel good about it too. So we see in uh, the revisit patterns of our customers and in their behavior that that they want to have fun when they shop. Shopping shouldn't be a chore. It should be something that you can feel good about from a from your from the perspective of your wallet from the perspective of the environment and if it's fun to do then we find that that's a very those three things are a very powerful combination in in expanding the market independent of, of demographics
1: and how many of the customers that you would serve are typically repeat shoppers? So, you know, not people who are just coming almost for the, the first-time thrill of a bargain, but people who actually like the service, like what they, they, they get for their money, and are happy to become almost a regular shopper.
2: Yeah, the, the vast majority of our unit sales are to repeat customers. So we have um, really nice net revenue retention across our different purchase cohorts. And we think that, again, it's just a function of the, the value uh, the fun, the daily freshness, and um, and again, increasingly this this notion that you're doing a little good in the process. I, I want to point out though that we don't expect people to pay more to to be more sustainable. You know, I think we've learned that customers want it all. They want amazing prices, amazing brands, amazing selection. And oh, by the way, if the nature of your business model and how we upcycle millions and million units of clothing, does good for the world, they're like, okay, well, we'll take that too.
1: And how much of sustainability is really kind of in the consumer's head, do you think, when they're, you know, shopping online and they're looking at you versus a, an alternative? You know, is, is the fact that you are in a circular economy here really, you know, part of the reason why they're buying from you?
2: I think it really depends on on the customer. You know, I think there there are some customers who respond to our initial outreach uh, on a message that's tied to the broader impact of their purchase and there are many who respond to J Crew for $15. So but we we don't judge, you know, either way is fine. I think what we try to do um, you know, we think about our relationship with our customers is it's like every other relationship. You you have the early days, you know, you have the the middle days, you get to know each other more over time and I think what we emphasize as we think about segmenting our customers, how we talk about our assortment, our pricing, our value proposition, is to look. We we want to hook you on whatever is most important to you initially, but over time we want to underscore that you're doing good, you're doing the right thing, you're saving money, and that's how that's how I think we you know we build loyalty. You have to. There's some customers who want to learn more and want to know more. There's some who come and they say, "Hey, I know that." That the textile and apparel industry is the second most polluting industry in the world. You don't. You don't need to tell me about that. I'm good. Others are like, "Wow, really? I had no idea." And if I'm looking at two items, uh, and they're uh, two items I'm interested in, and the pricing is comparable, if I can do some good in the process, it might. It might help me to think of thread up first, and think secondhand first. And actually, the phrase "think secondhand first is one we use a lot because that's as we think about how we design our products, uh, the type of customer experience that we want to deliver either when you get your order or on the site, we want to make it so easy. We want to make it hit on what's important to you such that you will say, you know what? I, there's, there's a lot, I, I feel like browsing today or I feel like shopping for something specific. Let me just check thread up first because it's sort of like if they have it, it's a great deal. It's the right thing to do. And if they don't have it, then I'll then I'll expand my search. We we use that principle to drive a lot of our thinking around uh, marketing and and acquisition and the value proposition.
1: And, and and looking at this kind of circular economy within the data points that you would assign to every product, do you have evidence of products which are coming back once, twice, three, four times over over time?
2: We do. So we do see some, you know, some repeat product coming through the system, and that's that's okay. I mean, we're we're we, will, um, we want to get a product uh, back into the market as long as it is in amazing shape and as, and as long as it's a great deal. And, you know, another thing that I'll share is that we're finding, too, that sometimes just being really transparent with customers makes a, makes a big difference. So if something does come in and it's missing a button, we also find that if we say, hey, it's missing a button, and maybe it's you know fifty cents, a dollar, two dollars less, whatever it is. The customer's like, I'll will take you know I'll take a moment and sew the button on. So what we're also finding as we gather more data, but to date we've we will have upcycled nearly a hundred million items. So we've got a quite a broad data set on um, on unique items and their attributes and and pricing and how long those items sat on our site and how many customers interacted with them. It gives us a sense for. Um, being able to take a lot of unique items and understand what customers value about them, having having a missing button is not a bad thing to everyone. It's a good thing to a, to a lot of people. So we're trying to be transparent about that, and um, and again, keep you know keep products in the circular economy just as long as they can.
1: Yeah, as we sit here, you're giving me great ideas for starting up a business about secondary buttons, and I really <laughs> think there's a market. Here for <laughs>
2: Hey, there's, a, there's, there's, a, you know, there's a market for secondary everything. There really is.
1: Yeah. And I think that's uh, what we're going to see in, in the future. And certainly as I think more legislation comes in place, more companies are starting to recognize about needing to do the right thing, how procurement itself becomes a, a bigger headache for companies. Certainly the resale market is set to grow. How do you see ThredUp, um being in that space? I mean, you're in a leading position now. What kind of competitors do you see around you? Or, or how is the environment going to change? Which will, either help to progress or impede your success.
2: When I started at the company um, six, seven years ago, um, I had this view coming in that um, that you know this was going to be a, a a tough sell to consumers. How do you convince people to to buy secondhand clothing uh, on the internet? How do you how do you um, get them to think about this? And by and large, I was right <laughs> in the early days, in the early days, you know, there was, we had, um, a core of very, very enthusiastic customers, uh, but this has really changed. So if you, and again, we do this data, we pull this data every year with our resale report, upwards of 56 million women purchased, uh, used products in the U S uh, in 2018, um, it's just remarkable. You quote you quoted the number early on that the market is a twenty four billion dollar market for uh, for resale apparel, growing to fifty one in the next five years. That's growing twenty one times faster than um, than the general apparel market. And I think again, what's driving that are some of these behavioral shifts amongst younger customers. I think what's driving it is is price and value. What ThreadUp is doing is. Building a supply chain around amazing secondhand product and, and finding ways to get that into consumers' hands, and you'll see with some of our partnerships with retailers, you know, we get the question often why you know why do you want to put thread up product into retail locations? Why not just stay all online? And the answer is is well it's what the, it's what consumers want. So when we went out in 2018 and we did a, a, a large study and did a big survey. The amazing answer that came back across the board from customers of virtually every type of retailer across the average unit price spectrum is they said, I would buy more from this retailer if they also sold secondhand product. Right. So that it just reinforced for us this fact that the, the consumer who purchases secondhand clothing isn't someone else's customer it isn't some niche it's it's really everyone's customer there's a there's a there's a bargain hunting thrifter inside of just about every one of us and while some of us may take more pride in that and shout about it on instagram some may be more quiet about it but that person is there and so i think as we move forward i think we will see this this shift in consumer behavior um Help, you know, uh, facilitate and feed that. What is a very fairly natural evolution of uh, consumer behavior?
1: And I think, for me, one of the big shifts that seems to have taken place, and whether that's just an organic thing or whether that's a response to some of the environmental things around, be that about price value or or the sustainability side, is that the stigma is gone or the stigma is less than it was before. And I think people are at least open for the experimentation. I think you see people like um, Levi's Urban Outfitters have had a very successful part of vintage within their store collections in recent years. But even people, the brands like... And on a Republican, J. Crew are starting to look at rental uh, of their apparel collections as well, as well as some aspects of resale. So I think you're right. I think it's it's something which is now becoming the mainstream. One of the things that certainly helped um, in the UK, and obviously as a podcast which is uh, emanating from the UK, we have a big second uh, hand or clothing resale market too. But it's typically always come from the charity sector, so thrift stores. Um, But in recent times, we've also seen there how the thrift stores themselves are having to up their game. In recent years, and over the last five years specifically, we've seen all of our major charities invest in some fairly serious store designs, some training programmes for their colleagues, and they've really started to professionalise this business. And correspondingly, it's no surprise that they've also done very well. Now, your recent entry into the, uh, the actual physical retail estate side is quite new, and I believe only um, in, the, in the summer of this year, you raised a, a massive capital investment round there to, to support you in those growth plans. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Please.
2: Yeah. So I, I think we we just really are always thinking about where is our customer and um and we and we really follow them and make sure that we're delivering what um, what unique value ThreadUp can offer that they they respond to and they want to see uh, amazing secondhand product in in more places than just on ThreadUp and the reason why is because they are in those places and they are. Shopping in those places, and we, you know, we as ambitious as we are, we know that um, it's unlikely uh, that a day will come when 100 percent of consumers' closets are used clothing. I think we've we've um, you know we've resigned ourselves to that to that fact. But I think what balances out uh, that is that we also know that it's extremely unlikely that 100 percent of consumers' closets will be new things. And so putting amazing product in the categories and brands and the prices that they care about and the places where they shop, that's really what's been behind our resale as a service initiative um, that that we've announced we're doing with Macy's and and JCPenney and soon many, many others.
1: And to what extent is there a brand experience of ThreadUp in those store environments? So the online experience clearly is branded, and you get the fancy boxes that come through, and and the whole look and feel is nice and tight. But what are you doing to kind of give customers a real experience, a physical experience in store?
2: So in the in the stores, the the ThreadUp part of the store, say at Macy's, and you should go visit the one uh, in Walnut Creek. There's a bunch in in the San Francisco area while you're here. And when your listeners from, from Europe come to the States, I hope they'll look for the up location closest to them. But you'll see a threat-up branded experience in that store. Um, but I think we're, uh, we're also relying on our retail partners to do what they do best, which is to create retail and service experiences that make the, the visitors and shoppers in their store feel fantastic and get what they need. And we will power... The resale component, which is making sure they get incredible product that's priced right, that's relevant to the season and the geography and the and the merchandising requirements of that store, um, and so that's that's how we're approaching it right now. So while you may not get a thread-up polka dot bag um, shopping bag when you leave Macy's, it will be a Macy's bag. Um, we think that our retail partners are really motivated to, to make those experiences incredible, and we're really motivated to make sure that the, that the secondhand product there is is an incredible value and will get those customers to come back to that store.
1: Presumably, though, that the people who are going to come to one of the physical stores are also customers online. And is there anything that you do there to almost acknowledge how the customer demographic in a particular city or regional location is suited to what they'll find in store?
2: Yeah, so the, the really cool thing about... Um, about the e ecom side of the business is that we have you know a great amount of granularity and insight into uh, brands and patterns and all sorts of merchandising trending data given geographies. So we keep a close eye on that and we um, we compare learnings with our retail partners and we also co market uh, to uh, our customers um, and they co market to their customers. And so we're sort of looking at how all this comes together and uh, and so far it's been performing very, very well, and we'll, we'll, we're, we're gathering data every day.
1: So one of the questions I've got to ask is, what is James... Doing with his shirts, so <laughs> this whole thing started. The fact that your founder and CEO, yeah, um, he couldn't find a place to uh, to change his shirts. so yeah. you're not you're not offering men's on the site right now. <laughs> What's happening there? i Presumably, just has a lot more shirts.
2: Yeah, James has a lot of shirts. I think though, in 20 maybe 2018, I think he went a full year without buying anything, any new clothing. So, but I think he'll be the first to tell you that come the, you know, the January of the new year, after he made that one year, no new clothing pledge, I think there was a lot of pent up demand. I think he went on a bit of a, a bit of a shopping spree, but yeah. So, so we get asked about men's all the time and, you know, it's a market that we, we continue to study. We, we believe that the, the, the resale market for women's is, is significantly larger and uh, so we, we study it and we keep an eye on it. And we do have um, many customers who write in and say, hey, when are you, you going to sell men's? And so uh, we're keeping an eye on it.
1: But clearly you've made a strategic decision for now not to do men's. And are there any particular barriers there that you see that you know, could affect you know kind of – clearly there's a growth opportunity which is immediate in women's and kids, and that's what you're progressing. But hey – what's in it for the guys yeah
2: i know but I, well hey uh, i i can i definitely empathize with that so yeah you know there there are uh for us you know a number of of adjustments we'd have to make but look when you're accepting um you know when you have millions of items a day coursing through our uh our logistics network our automated facilities you know accepting men's doesn't you know doesn't break the back of it so it's it's always there as a um, as an as an add on to the business, and uh, we'll just we'll just keep watching it. We're we're really really focused on serving our customers extraordinarily well, and um, you know there probably will come a time when we'll when we'll consider men's uh, you know more more seriously.
1: One of the things that the established store-based clothing brands have recognized in recent years as they've increasingly moved into the e-commerce space is the high cost of returns, Uh, not just the high cost of processing the returns, but actually in many cases that the returns that come back into their facilities are unwearable or unsellable. Um, How are you overcoming almost being a low carbon uh, footprint business from a manufacturing perspective um, and not just actually then, you know, offsetting that with an awful lot of shipping and lorries and transportation around the country?
2: Yeah. So, so first off, let me say that returns are, um, you know, as, as any person in retail will tell you is sort of a the, the bane of their existence. You know, you you work hard to to achieve your sales, and then you sort of give them back. Um, we we've really, I think, worked very hard at managing uh, returns, and we've done it, frankly, through a lot of transparency with our with our customers. You know, um, we 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 really try to con- to demonstrate for them that. While some retailers may tell you that returns are free, their returns are not free. You know, you're paying for it somewhere. So we we're really transparent with about customers who who return a lot and say, Hey, we love that you love us, but you may be loving us too much. Can you can you help us out, you know, with all these returns? So so I think there's a lot um, that can be can be done there. I, I think as far as the the sort of apples to apples comparison on on logistics for returns, it's it's sort of a it, it's It's a universal problem, and so I think we um, try to keep returns down. We try to communicate with customers about their behavior. We try to give them more information about unique items through photography and attributing on the site so they make the right choices, Um, and then...
1: And your returns right now, are they going point to point? So you did to the customer, and if the customer returns, they send it back to one of your facilities. Exactly.
2: We handle our own returns.
1: Because it's quite interesting, even in the last couple of weeks, Nordstrom have announced where they're uh, soon to be offering a return service for competitor brands. So you didn't necessarily buy it from Nordstrom, but they'll take back the return and process that return.
2: I think this is a fascinating, fascinating development. I saw the, the same report. I, I think there's a lot to be learned about how... That will perform. How it will change consumer behavior, getting people into stores. You see, Kohl's doing this with Amazon returns. So, look what what I think is wonderful about it is that it's all about the consumer. You know, the consumer just wants the most convenient place, and if it isn't their post office uh, or a UPS store, having it uh, be a retailer where they're going to anyway could be good all around. It could be good for the logistics chain. It could be good for. The cost of processing returns, and it could be good be because it drives an incremental purchase. So,
1: and I uh, think one of the things that's certainly been uh, an increasing anxiety for consumers which have really taken to e-commerce is the, let's call it urban clutter and the frustrations that it creates. You know, there are so many delivery vehicles, there are so many time slots, there are so many missed uh, appointments. Um, you know, we're all used to having the card on the map that says, you know, <laughs> it's it's with your neighbor and your neighbor is is similarly not got your part. Yeah. So I guess um, this whole kind of last mile fulfillment is, is really the holy grail that I think everybody is now looking for. And that's why I think uh, possibly something uh, uh, Nordstrom are looking at is how by aggregating um, returns together, operating almost a centralized facility, actually there's benefits for everyone. It's low cost, it's high efficiency, and there's benefits for the consumer.
2: Yeah, we, we think it's fascinating. There's also a business here in, in the States called Happy Returns that uh, is a... Who we're, um, we're friendly with? We don't we don't use their service, but we're, we're friendly with them because we really admire what they're doing. And they're doing exactly what you said. They're not a retailer, but they're partnering with retailers to bundle returns. And I think it's a it's a really exciting um, it's a
0: really exciting problem they're solving that consumers will love. Still to come from our interview with ThreadUp in San Francisco, we explore Anthony's career history, delve deeper into the company's culture, and talk international expansion. Stay with us. But now, Jason Bradbury reports from Tech Festival 2019 in London as he talks technology with ThreadUp co-founder and CTO Chris Homer.
3: Chris Homer, co-founder and CTO um, at ThreadUp. I've been really looking forward to this chat. So I'm interested in your history. I mean, it's a decade since ThreadUp was founded. Clearly, the business model came before the tech. Sure. We're talking about a time when you know, iPhone 3G had just launched, like 2008. What what tech solutions were there available then that actually didn't deliver?
4: Sure, I mean, you've got, for as far as platforms to sell, like I was saying, you've got eBay, Craigslist, those sorts of platforms. Um, but as we started experimenting in the warehouse with how we would process the clothes, we actually started with just buying the, the iPhones at the time. I think they were iPhone fours when we were setting up our our warehouse, and we had wow. a, a like an array of iPhone fours that the associates would sign out, take, and then they would literally be on photo studios taking pictures. And then that photography camera app that we wrote connected directly to AWS, and so we were we were using the cutting edge that was available at the time to, to build our custom solutions. And then over over time, as we um, learned to do software better, we actually then started using SLRs, better cameras, more studio lighting, much better setups, and still connected directly to the AWS cloud. So from that perspective, it hasn't changed dramatically. And as far as the 3PLs, which are third-party logistics providers, a lot of e-commerce uh, companies are, are using, they didn't really meet our needs because we handle individual items. They're all essentially unique items that aren't skewed, and so we essentially had to build our data and and uh, operations infrastructure from the ground up to serve um, what we needed. We're processing seventy thousand items a day. Uh, Actually, we're putting online 70,000 items a day, which means we're processing over 100,000 items a day. As you said, about two-thirds of everyone's closet goes unworn, just hangs there. That's dollars on hangers sitting in your closet, not being used productively. So it's it's amazing, but ThreatUp is all you have to do is fill up a bag. It's got a FedEx label on it. You fill up the bag of the clothes you want to get rid of. They come to us. We list them, photograph them, inspect them for quality, put them online, sell them for you, and uh, you earn you earn a, a cut of the proceeds. That's
3: incredible. What, the logistics of doing that, tell me a little bit about how you handle that volume of clothing.
4: Sure, yeah, so our, our warehouses, our distribution centers are, you can imagine um, three football fields stacked on top of each other of racking, automated, controlled by our, our systems, and as the items come in, we open the bag, somebody's inspecting it, photographing it, and it goes through this process where they ultimately end up in these racks. And it's just rack after rack after rack, aisle after aisle. It's a thrift store shoppers dream when they see it. And it's all connected and powered by the systems that we've built. The investment we've made in the automation in, in our distribution centers means that for cheap items, there's still a certain cost basis around shipping and logistics that you, know, you just can't get around. So for cheap items, yeah, you're not going to earn very much. But for your mid-range your, or even like premium items like, let's say, Lululemon or some of the nicer brands that, that are really sought after, you're earning 50 60 80%, even though we're doing all the work for you.
3: I'm interested to know how you use automation. What sort of robotics do you use? What It's not all done by people, right?
4: It's, it's a mix. When we started out, it was very manual, all done by, by our associates in the distribution centers. Um, and then over time, we've, we've tried to eliminate as much motion and, and waste in that process so that the people are doing the value-add steps. And over time, we can imagine um, our algorithms taking more and more off their hands. And so our older distribution centers are more manual, but the newer ones, like I was describing, um, where you've got that automated system for storage and, and picking and packing, um, it's more and more automated all the time. And then on the inbound, we're using the photography to try and extract attributes and automate how the processing of clothes coming in goes online so that we don't have to uh, train people as highly. I was going to
3: say that, that's, a, that's a machine learning dream really isn't it because, because one of the ways that when you inevitably have the you know AI conversation with someone who's not particularly technical is, is they ask what's what it used for and, and obviously pattern recognition is you know, it's one of the key focuses. I would imagine that your business lends itself really well to that.
4: For sure. And we, we use it everywhere from extracting those attributes to how we price items to the demand we're seeing from, from people on the site. And then that goes into our pricing system to determine what level of price we recommend for the supplier. And then the supplier can change it if they'd like. So you've built it from the ground up. How are you, how are you fixed for AI
3: and blockchain?
4: Sure. From an AI perspective, um, we have a vast data lake that we've built up over, over the years, and the, the, the pace that we're processing new items and that customers are coming, browsing, interacting with those items, and ultimately purchasing those items means that there's machine learning essentially powering every step from the suppliers that we target to try and attract to the platform to get better and better goods available for for buyers, to which items that we accept uh, with which attributes and based on the photography, to extracting the attributes from the photos to how we price them. And then as we're actually giving that buying experience, we're using all that data to try and make it a much more personalized, rich treasure hunt as you try to find that perfect item for yourself.
0: That was Jason Bradbury for the Retail Exchange in London. Now back to San Francisco, and our interview is ThreadUp President Anthony Marino and guest host Carl McKeever.
1: So you joined ThreadUp um, around about seven years ago. That's right. And I think you came from a, uh, a, a very interesting brand, um, part of the Virgin Group. That's right. What did you bring with you from Virgin?
2: Yeah, Virgin. I loved my experience at Virgin. I was there almost seven years as well, and. There's actually more in common with um, my experience at Virgin and with coming to ThreadUp than might be immediately clear on the surface. So when I first learned about ThreadUp, it occurred to me that it was in some ways right out of the Virgin playbook in that it, it was a business that was reinventing a category that had sort of been left for dead.
1: I'm guessing Richard Branson really was the original disruptor in many ways, wasn't he?
2: Well, he was. He's certainly was a big inspiration for for me, and and so Virgin had you know identified industries as consumers love to hate: airlines, telecom, the train system in the UK. The list goes on and on and on, and had come up with ways to both re-engineer the unit economics from the bottom up to make to achieve profits, but also Redesign the consumer experience to invest dollars where consumers found the most value, and so um, and had you know Virgin has had great success being a, um, you know shaking up as Richard likes to say uh, a bunch of industries and and also sort of changing things for the better. And so when I when I first learned about ThreadUp was uh, I looked at a business secondhand clothing, which on the surface certainly didn't have sex appeal at the time but boy did it have the makings of um, a business who if you could if you could take resale scale it so, such that the friction points in the consumer experience around quality and selection and price and things like returns and you were able to to build an operating and a technology platform to create that incredible experience you really could reshape the way people think about secondhand and so, after seven years at Virgin, looking at that opportunity at uh, at ThreadUp for me, it was a very natural uh, next step and an and an extraordinary opportunity that I'm that I'm grateful for.
1: I think one of the things that people would say about the Virgin Group um, companies and and how they've innovated within each of their markets is that it's all about the customer and looking for ways to both add value but importantly to add joy into whatever is the experience. Um, How do you do that at ThreadUp?
2: You know, it's so funny that you use the word joy because we were actually talking about the word joy um, this morning. You know, I, I think that Every business, you know, communicates with with customers in its own way. You know, some some businesses are are serious by nature, and others are more are more playful and and fun. And I think that um, one of the things I did learn at Virgin is that um, oftentimes in businesses you focus on the big gestures, um, big expensive, hard things you do that make an impact on, um, how the customer interacts with your product. Um, in an airline that might be, you know, investing a lot in fancy seats. Uh, but there's also small gestures too. And I, I think one of the things we found at ThreadUp and something that I learned it at, at Virgin is that paying attention to to small things along the way. Um, and I'll give an example of a small thing. You know, if you get your, you know, your printed receipt, in the package, you know, when you get your order. Um, if there's something on there that just isn't totally what you expect, you know, if it's a little note or a little quote or a bit of inspiration, and we, we actually do this in, um, in our orders or we include a small kind of like an inspirational book, it has an enormous impact. Those are the things that people talk about and remember. And so I think when you think about joy, If joy is your goal, you really have to be really rigorous and and granular about every part of the experience. And sometimes you don't have have to overinvest in the really big, big stuff. It's the little things that the customer notices that they say, huh, somebody's paying attention back there.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think in the marketing that you do on the website and the certain things I've seen, you you try to communicate this uh, – it's a fun. It's easy. It's relaxed. It's a. It's a. It's a playful um, uh, culture. Um, within ThreadUp, up but how do you take that kind of almost marketing headlines and that brand communication and actually engender that into the people that work in your processing facilities the people that pack the boxes the people that process the returns because you know finding joy inside the company is as important as actually putting joy on the outside
2: the, this has been a um something we've learned so much about uh, over the past few years as the company is scaled which is how is the and this could be like the a follow-up podcast, Carl. It's sort of how does the culture of um, the corporate entity and the culture of our distribution centers, how do those, uh, you know, they're very different. It's a very different kind of workforce, very different types of hours, very different types of work and conditions. And um, we actually invest a fair amount of, of time and effort in, in making sure that we're communicating uh, to those teams like the values of the company and what we're about and who our customers are and why are sales up or down just giving more and more context and I and I wish I had a um, a more uh, a more nuanced answer but it's it's our leadership in those facilities that drives it more than any handbook or binder or poster that we could produce it is it is the difference we have one uh, head of one of our facilities. Who every morning makes sure that when he comes in, he visits, he walks through the facility and he makes eye contact and a handshake with every single person in that facility. So back to back to the small gestures, I think that leadership matters, you know, whether it's in a corporate environment, whether it's in our our distribution centers, the communication matters. And I think the reason why sometimes those things some companies maybe Get it wrong. It's not that they're trying to get it wrong, it's just that it takes energy. Sure. And it takes and it takes focus and someone has to do it. And so having that leadership makes all the difference.
1: One of the things I've often enjoyed myself from shopping online is, is kind of almost the, the, the different type of experience you get when the parcel arrives. So there are some companies that invest uh, time and effort in getting a third-party logistics partner who's the right person. So the box arrives intact, it looks good, it's sharp, it's clean, you open it and it's nicely packaged. How does ThreadUp deal with this when you are processing so many parcels and making so many deliveries a day? How do you keep the consistency of quality?
2: well we, we actually think that the that the box opening experience is a really important part of the experience for us so we still you know every order is still hand wrapped in green polka dot tissue paper and there's a there's a sticker that's placed on top and we we keep doing it because customers keep responding positively to it as far as the you know the the consistency of it all the all the credit there goes to our uh, to our distribution center leadership and and teams who 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 pay attention you know who put a little love into every into every box. And, I think
1: for me, the reason I take so much interest in it, I, I, can, I can count so many times where I'm actually in the line at a physical retail store, you're waiting patiently just to spend your money, you have your items in hand, and then you get to the front of the line and you meet somebody who is disinterested in you, you possibly don't even get an acknowledgement to please or a thank you, they stuff the items in a bag, you know, you actually feel pretty shabby yourself at the end of that thinking, why did I give my money to this company? For me, a lot of stores seem to have forgotten the basics, but I'd love to know what you think.
2: So I grew up uh, in New Jersey, in suburban New Jersey, and I I grew up going to Willowbrook Mall. You know, which was a—it's exactly what it sounds like. It was a big mall. There was a—it's a Macy's there now, where I think there's actually—and this sort of blows my mind. There's a thread up store in that Macy's at Willowbrook Mall where I grew up going as a kid. And but before that, it was. Uh, it was Bamberger's, you know, it was one of the US department stores that I think Macy's had acquired. And before that, it was something else. And uh, I have to admit that I have a fair amount of nostalgia for those experiences of going into those places. And I remember going, when my mom would go to the makeup counter, the the ladies behind the makeup counter would, would, would chat with me, you know, it was just a little guy. And, um, and one of the things we think about a bunch at thread up actually recently too. We thought we were sort of on this theme a couple of years ago is how do you create any sense of that, that warmth and nostalgia that you get when you go into a retail environment? And I think look, some of the most successful retailers now are ones who have, who've, who've done that with with different kinds of experiences. Um, I, I'd frankly like thread up to figure that out. I, I'd like us to figure out a way to, um, it's hard to make a memory, you know? And you make a memory as a kid by going to that mall, you know, every week with your mom, or every, you know, once a month. And so I think figuring out ways to bring a social element to the shopping experience, to 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 find small gestures, gestures that sort of show you care. And I think, look, I think it also, surprising people every now and then, um, in a good way, it's a really powerful thing. I mean, and sometimes it could be as simple as a phone call. Mm -hmm. If you're a customer who's made an order on of five times and, you know, you get a phone call, assuming, you know, it's not at dinner time, and they say, hey, we just wanted to make sure. Is everything, you made five orders with us. Are you really happy with us? Maybe it's things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe not, you know, maybe they don't want, maybe they don't want the phone to ring, you know, at their house. But there's probably, um, there's a way, and I think the best retailers who have, The benefit of physical retail, that's why I think physical retail will never go away, it will just evolve
1: we've all seen both in Europe and especially in the USA, you know, not only the massive decline in malls, but, you know, wholesale closures of brands on, on a massive scale. Something bigger is going on here. It's not that customers don't like shopping, clearly they do, but they're just finding new ways to shop. But what I'm interested to know is, is saying, why is something like ThreadUp bucking the trend on that? Yeah, you sell some great stuff and you sell it for a great price and you're offering great service. But I think there's something else that's going on in the consumer's mind that says, do you know what, we're just a little bit, out of love with stores now
2: yeah I mean look if you if you look at the data you know what the data will show you is that if you ask customers consumers what's in their closet today and what will be in their closet in five years they they're they're very clear you know um, where they're saying they're going to shop more and shop less they're going to shop less at department stores they're going to shop a bit less at fast fashion they're going to shop a bit less at at, uh, at mid-tier retailers they're going to shop more secondhand, more rental, more off-price. So there's a there's just a shift in the value equation.
1: So um, whereas before we've had pretty much a mono distribution model, uh, you know, it's been a kind of a retail or a wholesale scenario. Actually, we have many more opportunities and lots of possibilities to try and to flip in and out of.
2: Infinitely more choices. I think what what you see. I think perhaps the difference between the innovators in retail and and maybe some of the traditional retailers who have to contend with their existing infrastructure, you know? So it's not that they're not coming up with great ideas. They have a big ship to turn. So I think But one of the biggest differences you're seeing is that consumers have a constantly evolving set of needs. They have a constantly evolving set of criteria. uh, by which they use to make make choices. And I think it was Jeff Bezos who said in one of his shareholder letters, you know, customers are always sort of perfectly dissatisfied, even when they're satisfied. And so you have to just be relentless about identifying how it is they're making those choices. And I think for ThreadUp, the core value proposition around the brands and the pricing and the selection, having it all in one place, having the quality be there having the pricing be consistent, being able to return those items is just an extraordinary proposition on top of the fact that there is a, an element of, hey, I'm actually doing the right thing by my wallet and by the planet too. So,
1: so you're based here in San Francisco, uh, and I think I'm right in saying you're offering this service in the USA only right now. Are there plans for international?
2: We, we are looking at it, uh, but we're really focused on, um, on the U.S. right now.
1: And how much being a business in San Francisco um, has made all of this possible? I mean, look, this is a, a city which, in its own uh, recent history, has reinvented. It's, it's disrupted itself. You know, it's yeah. home to so many of the startups. So many of these have got technology as a as a backbone. That's you know, with a with a very very exciting front side marketing. Could this have happened elsewhere?
2: I, I think it could have. I think it could have happened elsewhere. You, you know, it's. My answer to this question is probably different now than it would have been three or four or five years ago. So, San Francisco is getting quite expensive. Tell me, we've been uh, here for a week and we know this. It's getting it's getting quite expensive uh, uh, in every, on every dimension um, to hire, to to live, the traffic. Uh, so, I I think it shouldn't come as a surprise. It's it's sort of very logical that that we're seeing across. Uh, both companies large and small that are headquartered in the Bay Area that they are finding and setting up uh, facilities in other parts of the country and I think some of that is is the cost. Uh, some of it is that it's sort of unrealistic to assume that the best people for your business are always going to be within 20 miles.
1: And clearly, you're very passionate about the business. Um, people here work very hard, but when you're not in the office or not in one of the facilities, you know, how, how do you cool down? How do you chill out?
2: Yeah, well, so I have a family. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have kids and a wife, and so I chill out uh, with them. I chill out um, by trying to stay fit, which I'm finding is getting is getting harder and harder. I'm a big reader. I love to read. I just find that when I when I don't read i kind of hit a um my reservoir it gets a little bit too close to the bottom so i try to read as much as i can before i fall asleep
1: and what's your current book of the moment
2: uh right now i'm reading a book uh, called the overstory uh and uh it is a very thick five six hundred page book that's a bunch of short stories but the running metaphor through the book is the relationship of these families and these individuals to believe it or not the trees that are planted around their homes and um, and that are a part of their lives, and it's an extraordinary book. So I'm only about eighty five pages into it, but it's uh, it's it's pretty phenomenal.
1: So that's one a little bit of bedtime reading.
2: Yeah, and then before that, I kind of reread a separate piece by John Knowles, which is always just a great uh, reminder.
1: Anthony Marino, president of ThreadUp. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you as part of the interview series on The Retail Exchange.
0: It's been great, Carl. Thank you. You've been listening to The Retail Exchange podcast in association with Visual Thinking. Stay up to date with new podcast episodes by subscribing online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter Hashtag
4: #retailexchange. Thanks for listening.